I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is with Jim Wagner. Uh, Jim is a design partner at Hans Golf Design. He is obviously Gil's right-hand guy, um, you know, deeply involved with every project that uh, Hans Golf Design is uh, is doing, which is right now they have uh, quite a few projects. We are going to go into great detail on today's episode about the park. The park is uh, opening this week. It opened on Monday, and it is a new public golf facility in West Palm Beach. It is a mere 10 minutes from the airport, very close to Jupiter, Boynton Beach, Delray Beach, uh, all sorts of vacation spots down there in South Florida, obviously pretty close to Fort Lauderdale and Miami as well. Uh, The park is a... uh, a new development, which uh, was an old course. So it was the West Palm Beach Golf Course, which was a Dick Wilson design from about, I think it was 1947. It was a golf course that had gone uh, out to pasture. So, you know, it was losing the city money and it, it uh, closed down and had been non-operational for about five years. Uh, it was resurrected uh, by Seth Waugh, who... Uh, obviously, you know, as the CEO of the PGA, he was doing this not as the PGA, but uh, as a citizen. Uh, his uh, real partner in this is a, a guy named Dirk Ziff. And a uh, really neat model what they did. Dirk is actually going to be listed as a, a, uh, a in, involved with the design. So it is a Hans, Wagner, and Ziff design. But they went around and uh, raised $30 million, and what the way they set this up is they have a long-term lease with the city of West Palm Beach. I think they lease it for a dollar a year and obviously have a revenue uh, share back to the city, and they also have effectively a nonprofit foundation where all this money sits in to maintain this golf course and uh, continue operating it for years to come. So the park is, uh, you know... It'd be really, you know, remiss not to mention it's on a beautiful site. It's a wonderful piece of property for golf. It was completely redone and uh, it is brand new, effectively, a brand new golf course on this great site in a city center. And I think, you know, from my perspective, it is one of the very best golf courses in Florida, full stop. I think that if you were going to compare it to golf courses in South Florida, I think the the course that you're going to compare this to most is seminal. It is in really elite company in terms of this golf course. And, um, you know, it's a credit to all involved in it. And it really shows, I think this is going to be a landmark golf course in the next era of municipal and public golf. It shows that, and hopefully will prove over time that public golf architecture doesn't have to be boring, that you can hire great architects to do public projects. You don't have to just hire, you know, the guy that did the course down the street. 
This is uh this is really an exciting thing. I think the thing that I I personally am most impressed by is that they didn't take any shortcuts. They didn't water anything down. This is an experience that you would expect to have at a private club from a golf course perspective. It is a it is a masterful design. It uh is super fun to play. From what I gather talking to Seth and Dirk about the project, uh they kind of put together a group uh and they pulled everybody you know most people that invested in this are are really into golf they're super golf nuts Dirk and Seth certainly are they played a lot of the great golf courses and they they wanted this place to be fun and accessible so they pulled everybody involved on what fun meant what fun golf meant and and tried to you know put that into the design and the effort around the golf course and the culture so it's going to be a welcoming place uh it is going to be relatively affordable. I think the greens fees run from uh, $60 for West Palm Beach residents to about 120 for Florida residents. And then, you know, if you're coming from out of town, you'll get popped. But I think that's the right model. Let locals come play uh, at affordable rates. And it also has a short course, a lighted uh, driving range, and a big putting green, uh, a place that is going to be ideal for people to go learn the game. Uh, along with the golf course, there's a comprehensive programming, uh, educational programs, really different services to really get kids interested in the game of golf. So when you think about projects, what courses you should be most excited to go see, this is one of them. Um, I think there's obviously a lot of resort development and a lot of, um, private golf development that's going to get a lot of headlines in the next few years, but I can't think of many projects that um, are more important in golf than the ones that are accessible, open, and close to people. Um, and that's why I'm, I'm really excited about this uh, this course and what it will do, hopefully, for golf uh, in the future. I think that this is obviously a project that was uh, undertaken by people with... with um, means as well as people with connections, but it's not unrealistic for most cities to have setups like this and and be able to invest in golf in a way that they can improve their golf course through their community. And and this is going to be a, a, uh, a real credit to the community, a real landmark for the community. And, um, I can't say enough about it. I'm I'm uh I'm thrilled that I got down to see it. I didn't I was happy I could squeeze it in. I you know, I played this golf course the day after Augusta National. I was really excited uh to play Augusta and you know, that was obviously a surprise on my trip as if for anybody that listened to the last podcast, but you know, I was almost equally as excited to go see what they'd been cooking up at the park. Um I've seen a lot of Gill and Jim's work over the years. Um, I've seen most of their American catalog of, of designs. And honestly, I would put this up there near the top of, um, of their work. And so really, uh, really an awesome golf course. We're going to have more stuff to come, uh, on it. We will, uh, we'll have some visuals. We'll probably put together, um, a video on the golf course on the YouTube page. I'm, uh, in the process of writing an article, um, and we'll have some photography and social content around it. So check that out. But most, most importantly, book a trip down to the park, uh, play the, play that golf course. I, I would, uh, I'd be hard pressed to find a place that isn't more 
you know, want to get back out and play more golf at. It's it's one of those places you're going to want to lap. And, you know, what a great place to go visit, especially in the cold months of the winter. Um, it, is, uh, it is a place that you can bring your entire family. So West Palm Beach now has a uh, an amazing golf course that everybody can play that's better than the vast majority of the private courses in town. So without further ado, here's Jim Wagner. All right, so tell me about the when you first learned about the park. Uh, and uh, had you played the previous course, the West Palm Beach Muni? No, no, I, I never actually played the uh, the original version. I had been down there several years ago uh, when we first started looking at, at moving down here. My brother owned a place, and uh, his son played a lot of golf, but he did not. So I actually set him up, and him and I went, you know, just to get him introduced to uh, – down to uh, the park and took lessons uh, with, uh, and I forget what her name is now, but she was an ex-touring pro that had, uh, LPGA pro that had uh, taken up residence or given lessons. And so I had been exposed to it, but just not on the golf course itself. What were your uh, first impressions when you you guys uh, started to plan out the park and, and what it is today of the site? I mean, the site is unbelievable when you think about it, right? I mean, uh, it, it, when you compare everything to Florida, I mean, we all know Florida golf, right? For the most part, with the exception of, of very few, you know, uh, courses, it's just, it's fairly flat. There's not a lot of movement to it. But when you get to the park, I mean, that's the first striking element of the property is the, the amount of elevation change and the way the property rolls. Uh, no, no water on the property, right? Because I think... Uh, it was at one point, you know, from at least kind of the rumors that we heard is, you know, before it was a golf course, that's, you know, during hurricanes, that's where a lot of the farmers and, and uh, ranchers in the area took their uh, their cattle and their animals because it was high and dry. And I believe it, it probably sits on the same sand dune that probably formed Seminole, right? Because it, it, it's a crow flies. I, I don't believe it's that far from Seminole proper. And, uh, but it's the same type of material, right? It's kind of a, a beach, you know, a beach type sand, rounded sands that, sit up uh on a on a little bit of a bluff so it's it's nothing like you're you're used to seeing in the florida market with maybe the exception of Seminole. how uh nice was it was it i mean i have to wonder was it refreshing to build a golf course that's like for the people i think you know obviously in america a lot of the new builds are are either high-end resorts or um you know private golf courses was it was there something exciting or or different about building a golf course that's really you know municipal and and locally focused in a place that you live well uh, i mean yeah i mean for me it's the excitement and the stuff because i i think that all of our golf courses have you know the same thought process we don't necessarily change it for public versus you know private or resorts i mean sure we, we do you know add some different elements to different things on, on a level of who we think the client's going to be from a design standpoint. But when you look at it from the excitement of it, to me, I mean, it kind of means the world to me because that's what I grew up on, right? Growing up in Philadelphia, uh, you know, I wasn't exposed to the, the private club, you know, uh, lifestyle. So it was public golf. And fortunately, it was, it was really good public golf, right? Uh, with Cobbs Creek, you know, I lived, what, 15 minutes from Cobbs Creek. So played a lot of golf on Cobbs Creek, which obviously has the charm and background and design from Hugh Wilson, right, at Marion. 
and then another golf course which is only about maybe five minutes from Marion called Paxson Hollow, which had a, a you know a huge and a lot of interesting and unique golf course architecture elements as part of it. And uh, you know, when talking to Bill Kittleman, who does a lot of work with us and a mentor of Gil and I and was the pro at Marion for, you know, every how many years, thirty, thirty five years. Uh you know, he, he recalls that Joe Valentine had spent some time over at uh, Paxson Hollow kind of helping them, you know, build bunkers and things of that nature. And you can kind of see that in the quality and the art behind the architecture there. So, you know, I, I was fortunate to be able to, you know, grow up in that environment of great architecture. So bringing something like this to, you know, to Palm Beach and for all the kids and everybody who, you know, doesn't have the ability to play you know, uh, you know, high end uh, public golf or, or private golf. I mean, I, I think to me is really the, the essence of, of the game and, and 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 the start for everybody. I mean, it's awesome. It's awesome to be able to do something like that, whether it's, at, you know, at the park or eventually we get to uh, whatchamacallit, the Cobbs Creek or even, you know, uh, in D.C., the stuff we're doing with the uh, National Links Trust. So it, it's all great stuff and very important, I think. You you brought up Seminole as uh, as you know similar land. Do you have any other comparisons to to courses that you've seen that it reminds you of? Maybe. I mean, yeah, there's a lot. I mean, in Florida, I think Seminole is probably the only one. Uh, I mean, maybe some of the stuff that you know you see on the courses at Stream Song, just because of the elevation change there uh, and the whole sand aspect to it. Uh, but you can go around the world, you know, and, and if you look and you go to, you know, some of the stuff in, in Australia, you know, which was kind of some of our conversations, you've got elements because there is some flatness to the property, even though there's elevation change to it, right? So there's things on a couple of the opening holes that maybe feel more like a Kingston heap, which is kind of flattish, you know, exposed sand, you know, you kind of get that, that sand belt environment. And then there's aspects of it, you know, when you get to some of the elevation change holes, like the, the par three number 11 that that feels a little bit more like say royal melbourne so there's definitely elements of it so it's unique in that regard because it's florida golf elevation change but you know it does have this feeling of say like an australian sand belt environment when you went about the design process you said obviously you you guys have kind of the same ethos the same design um mindset for every type of golf course but you know you you kind of tweak it for unique situ for each situation with the with the park obviously it's a you know basically 30 investors all you know involved with it how was that design process and um environment different than say you know where you're building for a single owner i think from the single owner standpoint and we've been very fortunate with a lot of the single owners that we've worked with and you know michael the hoopy was great right it's just you know kind of turn us loose to, and let us do what that we do and, and create some something fun and interesting, right? Uh, that obviously was a little bit different because it was more of the match play component. So that was kind of more of our, you know, philosophy and thought process and kind of the vernacular that we were using uh, when we, we did work at a Hoopy. Whereas when we got to uh, the park, we we're starting to look at and think about some other stuff, right? Is that, sure, you know, we, we want it to be fun. Uh, that's always something that we use. We want it to be challenging. We want it to be thought-provoking, right? They're they're all the the kind of the, the vernacular or the words we we're using, and then we kind of adopted one more you know element to that, and that was bold, right? We talked a lot early on during the planning phases, Gil and I and and Dirk Ziff and you know some of the others that were involved about the golf course being bold, you know. And there's a lot of definitions of bold. Bold doesn't mean to be like you know kind of a Yale bold 
you know, where you've got a lot of bold features, but bold can also mean taking chances, you know, do things different. Uh, and, you know, a small green can be bold, you know. Uh, so there, there, there's stuff like that that kind of changed our thought process. And also we wanted to use the park as a way to kind of showcase what good architecture is all about, right? Uh, and I actually think, you know, maybe I saw an email or, you know, some stuff that maybe uh, you had said, Andy, and believe it or not, you know, it was actually uh, kind of spot on is that, you know, why, why can't, you know, public golf course architecture and public golf be, uh, I guess I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but be, you know, a showcase for what golf course architecture can be, right? It seems like a lot of public golf is, it starts out in, in a watered down version you know, to get people interested in the game and, and the move arounds through and for uh, sake of ease of maintenance and all the other stuff that comes in. But why can't architecture that people are seeing for the first time or public architecture, let's call it, why can't public architecture, you know, match that that beauty of private club architecture and the golden age architecture and all the stuff that, you know, all of us that, that really love and enjoy golf and golf course architecture uh, like to see in golf. And, and, and that kind of, you know, spearheaded us to, be a little bit think a little bit outside the box yeah I, I that was my kind of takeaway from it um i uh i mean on this podcast people have heard me talk about this for for years but you know where it, it doesn't make any sense that the people people's entrance to the game of golf which happens at at public and municipal golf courses is the least interesting version of golf there is like if you thought about it with any food any food variety any you know, really like any, anything, like if, if I said, you know, I always use the coffee reference. Like if I said to you and say you didn't drink coffee and I said, Hey, listen, I, I think you should drink coffee. And I took you to like a gas station at two in the morning and poured you a cup of coffee and said, here you go. This is great. You're going to love this. You'd be like, this is, this is awful. You know, yeah. you, and that's what we do with golf. And I think, you know, the thing that you hit on that I, w I was super impressed by and I, I, I was curious is like, to me, from what I've seen, I haven't seen all the courses you guys have built. Um, I feel like I've seen a, a fair amount. Um, the greens were reminded me a lot of the greens that you built at a hoopy match club where you where you and Gil have talked about how when you're when it's not a pencil in scorecard situation you could felt more liberated to build bold features to me the greens at, at the park like you go to the first green and you see this you know eight foot false front and you're, or maybe not eight probably six foot false front and you say wow like i did not expect to see this like you know right off the bat it's it it has you know you, you use the word bold but they're I, to me like very adventurous greens from from start to finish and oftentimes people would say you can't have that at a public course is is there anything with a hoopy and the praise that a hoopy's gotten over the years that's allowed you guys to feel more liberated on the greens at, at future builds i mean I, I don't i don't think so i mean it could have a little bit in it was kind of funny because when i was thinking of what type of questions you were going to ask me <laughs> uh you know, it kind of got towards, you know, the bold question and kind of what you just said. And the first the first green was kind of in my mind. Right. And it's scary that you're thinking like I am or I'm thinking like you are. Uh, but uh, it, uh, you know, I was thinking about that. And you're right. Like that, that is part of it, uh, whether it ties into Hoopy or not. You know, I mean, it, it could in some in some regards. But uh, I think if it ties into Hoopy, at least from my standpoint on kind of the greens that that I worked on is that. that 
you know, I like to think more about the recovery shot, right? And when you look at a hoopie and if you can kind of compare that thought process to the park, then it would be the same, right? Because a match play, the thought process, at least that I had, is that, okay, what are the recovery shots like? You know, the recovery shot for the guy who's getting a, a shot and he's playing, you know, match play uh, and he's not on the green. Like, what's the interest of that shot? How does it get the ball close? How does he then put pressure on his playing opponent who may have a 15-footer for uh, for birdie, but he's not in the best part of the, uh, of the of the green? So that was kind of the thought process of the hoopie. Now, it's kind of the same thought process at the park because you're thinking a lot about the average player, the higher handicapper, you know, the people who are first out at uh, – and it's their first, you know – you know, uh, experience on either playing the park or golf in general, they're not going to hit a lot of greens. They're going to miss a lot of greens. So what's their recovery? What's their shot, third shot? What's their fourth shot into the greens? And what's the interest of that? Being able to give them a place that they feel that they can play a a ball off of or a feature they can play, you know, around or need to play around. But just to really get them thinking about what that shot looks like. I think if you put all that together, I think it, it, it lends you to feel that, you can you can be more creative. You can do some different stuff because it's a different thought process. It's not solely about the approach shot into the green, right? Uh, it's about the recovery of a miss hit approach shot, and then I think that leads to an element of fun. Uh, and a lot of stuff we've been hearing about the park is exactly what you're bringing up. It's it's the greens. It's the fun on the greens. It's the fun around the greens. It's the green complexes. So I think that would kind of be the only parallel between the two. Uh, which, which, is, which is interesting, and I'm glad you picked up on it. Now for a quick word from our sponsor, Golf Genius. Your club may use Golf Genius Tournament Manager System for your club events and tournaments. At the Fried Egg, we use it for all of our events, and it has worked really well for us. It's It's awesome. It's made it way easy to run golf events, uh, registration, scoring, leaderboard, results. Golf Genius basically just handles it all and uh, and makes it easy for Will. Uh, I would like to say that I have a ton of involvement with that, but I don't. It mostly makes it really easy for Will. It makes his life a lot easier uh, at our events. Golf Genius also has a great product for the Pro Shop staff, Golf Genius Golf Shop. It is used to streamline special merchandise orders, track stock orders, manage demo clubs. Uh, That means no more shrinkage. Simplify staff scheduling, organize club repairs, and automated communication with club members. It's a great productivity tool that saves time, money, and hassles. But most importantly, it really improves member service, which is a win-win. Hundreds of clubs are using the platform today and are fired up about the benefits. If you're involved in the golf shop business, we recommend you check out Golf Genius. Just go to golfgenius.com to learn more. Now back to Jim Wagner. One question I, I was thinking about is like I, obviously one of the big rebuttals to building interesting architecture at a like what we're talking about with greens, for example, mm-hmm. at a public golf course would be immediately people would say pace of play. Is this going to be a pace of play nightmare? How do you alleviate the pace of play potential issue by building it? Like, what are some some features of the park that are going to help move people around the golf course quickly? Well, I mean, the, the pace of play, right? I mean, that's that's an interesting conversation because you know, uh, if you look at public golf, public golf, and you talk about pace of play, 
regardless of how the golf course plays itself. But let's talk about the use of carts and cart pads and cart pads only on certain instances. Let's talk about the the, uh, the beverage cart and let's talk about the time that people spend, you know, you know, getting drinks and doing all that stuff that are, are not golf related, right? I mean, that's probably going to add 20 minutes to a round of golf right there, you know, because you're stopping on the on the uh, front nine and again on the back nine. So, you know, there, there's a pace of play issue right there that starts with it. And I think just from the way the park is going to be run, you know, with having a, a caddy program and walking, I think is mandatory before a certain time in the morning. Uh, I think those elements are going to help with the overall pace of play. But from a play standpoint, it's just it's relying more on ground features and contours as it is opposed to a lot of bunkering. Right. You know, you played the park. I mean, even look at number one. You, know, you said number one. Perfect example. Sure. The left side of that green does have about a five or six foot elevation change. That could have been fairway turf just as much it was as it was green and still pretty much play the same way. Uh, the rest of the green doesn't have as obviously as much contour as that, but the front of that green is wide open. You know what I mean? There, there's not bunkering tight to the green. I think there's some bunkering off to the right-hand side, a little bit onto the left-hand side, which is pretty far out of play. It's probably about 100 feet, maybe 110 feet wide, the approach to that green. You know, it's, it's fairly significant. So things like that, if you make your way around the park, probably, you know, 80% of the greens are that way. They, they have a lot of interest in them, but they're very playable from that standpoint. And on number one, since you're chatting about it, you know, from a challenge, from a better uh, player standpoint, they may try to get there in two or if they lay up. But you do still need to hit a little bit of an exacting shot to get close to be able to make birdie uh, on that green. But it's not penal for the average player. So they're still able to make their way around the property, you know, relative ease as opposed to being in bunkers and relying a lot on bunkers and, you know, people playing ping pong and two to get out of the bunker, they're knocking it over the green. You know, so I think that helps uh, significantly with the pace of play. Yeah, I I think one of the other things about it, um, in I I I played this I played in a, a four like a thirty to forty mile an hour wind. I mean, Whoa. it was humming. <laughs> it, it was uh, it was not nice. I was uh, and like when that wind got off my left toward the end of the round, I was getting tired. I had been you know I gotten in late the night before. I was getting tired. My legs were gone. I started hitting these wipey fades, and when the wind was coming off my left, I mean, the ball was going miles right. One of the things I quickly picked up on is it's very hard to lose a golf ball out there. I mean, like, I think that, yeah, I can't, we used to, I used to, before I started the fried egg, I used to play, um, you know, uh, all around Chicago, but one of the places we would play is this course called Harborside. It was on the south side of Chicago, and, and you know, they had this, this, this rough and I have a buddy that was uh you know he was a little bit wild off the tee and we I I wouldn't play there anymore with him because like we just spend all day looking for golf balls and it was you know that was the time that we were spending you know and that's why it would pile up to a five-hour round is because everybody on the golf course is looking for golf balls and that it seems like it would be it's very challenging I'm sure everybody would be like oh you haven't seen me play but it it's it is a place that it is almost difficult to lose a golf ball. Yes, yes. Uh, first, two comments. F- first one, when, when you started this this question, you talked about your, your wipey fade with the wind coming off the left. The only reason why it wasn't a wipey fade on the other holes is because the wind was coming off your right and it kind of straightened <laughs> the ball out. Either way, it's still a wipey fade. <laughs> so, uh, the wind just helped you uh, in a favorable manner in that case. But 
No, you're right. You know, so that that's a great point, you know, is that it is hard to lose a golf ball there, right? Uh, the play quarters are extremely wide. Uh, even when you get into the exposed sandy areas out of play, uh, there, there's enough vegetation there to make the uh, the rough unpredictable. But yet it's in, a, in more of an open habit form where you can easily find your golf ball. Uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I've played there a handful of times. and I, I don't think I've ever lost the golf ball. And I can hit some of those wipey fades as well. So, but uh, that, that's another important component. That was part of our, our, our discussion point. I mean, a lot of things that had happened prior on that property due to kind of the sugar rounded sands is that uh, there was problems with wind blow because there was a lot of exposed sand. Uh, golf carts were getting stuck in the exposed sand. The, the sand was so white and blinding that people were actually losing balls in the sand because everything bled together. So we took a lot of that into consideration. And that's why you kind of see some of that natively rough stuff. And we've actually planted a bunch more native. So. It holds the sand in place for the most part. We're not going to have a lot of car traffic, so the carts are going to be minimal. And then uh, it also helps you find golf balls. But that was uh, that was all part of it. And we did. And we removed and transplanted and moved a lot of the native material around the property and, and kind of condensed it in areas that were out of play. There's nothing worse in Florida golf than losing your ball in, you know, those palmettos. Uh, yeah. You know, they're just, they're, they're just, it's horrible for the game of golf in Florida. <laughs> Um, with the, uh, with the fairway lines, one thing I was wondering about, you, you talk about the kind of sandy areas. I was out there, obviously a day it was wind, windy. I saw sand moving in. Are you anticipating kind of a, I think a course people would be most, uh, familiar with would be like Pinehurst number two, where maybe those fairway lines kind of move with the, with the environment over the years. Yeah. And, that, and that's what we're hoping for Andy. Right. And that's why we did it. I mean, one, I think that helps on maintenance costs. You know, you're not hard lining it. You know, which is kind of a golf construction architecture term, but you're not hardlining the golf course that you see in the desert where you're setting up irrigation, you're adding irrigation heads and you're throwing half heads to go ahead and control the water and, and have this, this line of fairway slash rough that stays consistent, you know, for the next 25, 30 years, whatever it is. You know, we're, we're set up so that whatever mother, mother nature does, whether it's the wind blow moving things around that's going to help enhance the golf course, whether it's, you know, depending on the time of year, right, where you get more rain, you may get some more run in the uh, in the sprigs and the Bermuda grass. You may get more runners that creep out, and then that turns into a little bit more of a, a rough area. You may get some areas that there's more dieback. So, yeah, we hope it kind of moves back and forth. Pinehurst number two or four is a good example. You know, there's a lot of great examples in, in the warm season climates of that happening. Uh, stream song is kind of the same way, right? It's all the same thought processes. You know, we're focusing more on the play areas, right? Greens, tees, fairways have been great, great condition, uh, great from a play standpoint. But as you get offline, things become a little bit more unpredictable. They're allowed to move and, and kind of, you know, go back and forth, really basically depending on what Mother Nature does, you know, any given year, any given month. Is there a stretch of holes out there that uh, you particularly think about or, or a, you know, a few single holes scattered about? Is there, you know, a hole that you love terms of you know what what was built into the ground and and maybe you know maybe it's something that's really loud so maybe it's something that's really quiet from you know uh the intricacy standpoint well uh you know in my case there's always a little bit of a story behind you know some of the stuff that we do but uh to me it's the whatchamacallit it's the 15th hole you know par five uphill right it's it's not a long hole so we had to come up and kind of be creative on how we were going to go ahead and and do something around the green that we weren't really, you know, the premise wasn't bunkering, right? We kind of, we kind of did that, eventually did that on nine just so we could be a little bit different. 
so nine is, has got a little bit more bunking, but on 15, we're trying to come up with a concept and, you know, Gil and I were with, uh, with Dirk and, and we were looking at some, uh, you know, some photos and, uh, I, we saw a photo of the jockey club, right. Down in Buenos Aires. And, and it was a picture and, you know, they used a lot of mounds in and around uh, the jockey club on creating their interest. So I was looking at this picture and it kind of, you know, kind of stuck in my head and, then uh, went and recreated, or what I thought was recreating that picture that I saw, and that's how that big mound ended up in front of the green, uh, which is kind of really a cool feature, right? If you're trying to go forward into it, and, and there's a lot of interest in and around behind it. So that was really the premise for the green side and how it tied into the ridge. And then the average player, probably on their third shot, if they miss the green, they can miss it right, but then they're looking right up at the mouth of the green. Uh, and then they have the support of that big mound on the left. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of support for them as opposed to the guy who's going forward in two. You know, they got to contend with that. The green's real narrow if you try to carry that knot. And there's a little slot that you can play through, you know, to help for the ball to be more receptive if you're hitting a longer iron into it. So built the whole thing, kind of had it set up and was kind of thinking about it again and looking back. And I brought it up, you know, the whole, uh, you know, the concept of jockey club and, I forget I was talking to, but they're like, oh, yeah, I've played down there. I remember that golf hole. And then they started walking through the golf hole. And uh, lo and behold, like the picture I was looking at, which I thought from the, was from the fairway, was not actually from the fairway. <laughs> it was from like the back left of the green. So the mound yeah. in this case was not even like in front of the green. It was off to the back of the green. <laughs> so I had envisioned it, you know, probably my dyslexia is setting in, uh, envisioned it from a totally different angle. And we ended up building you know, the uh, 15th hole, which ends up, I think, being really fun and interesting and kind of a cool way to handle a, a short part of five. But, you know, it was something that, uh, you know, my inspiration was totally opposite of, uh, of what was actually built. <laughs> so. to, to me, the 15th uh, represents like one of the themes of the golf course is, is what you can do with just simple green orientation and angles. Yes. You know, I think everybody thinks about like you have to have, you know, obviously like you have holes, you have a lot of variety out there. There's a ton of different stuff. You have a hole like nine where it's kind of on the flatter part of the land where you have a ton of ton of bunkering that I love that hole also. It's a, it's a, that's a super fun shot in there if you're going for it in two. But then you have a lot of greens that are dictated by, you know, just simple angles and, and contouring. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what you can do when you just, when you're just using angles to to uh, create strategy, yeah, I guess in, in this case, what we ch- chatted about a little bit earlier is you know really not using a lot of bunkering other than just a few cases is is what the defining strategy is around each individual golf hole, right? Uh, it, it's more along the lines of width, and and if you get the width and bunkering is not the key to everything, then it comes down to when you're separating out the better players and the higher handicappers, right? The better players need to learn how to play the golf course and get themselves on the right part of the fairway where they have the best angle into the green, right? And, and that, that that's all over that golf course uh, for the most part. I mean, and number two has it. Well, one has it as well, right? If you're going to play down well and you're playing your second shot, you know, you're going to have to play it down the right-hand side of, of, of the green in order to get the better roll or the better angle into the green. You miss it left, and you've got to come over that big bump. So angles were every, everywhere. Uh, on the property, it's on number two, right? The way that green is long and narrow, you know, uh, front left to kind of back rightish, you know. So playing down the left is a better angle. But the average player, it doesn't matter, right? The average player, they keep the ball, they find the ball, they keep it in play. 
even no matter where they hit into the approach. Sure, the angle of the green is tougher, uh, but they, they, they can play away from, you know, trying to be, say, on number two, trying to get there in, in two. Uh, if they don't hit a good drive, they can play out to the left and be 40 yards short of the green, and then they'd be looking right down the whole length of the green. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of things like that out there, but angles do help for sure. Uh, I mean, it's all over in golf, right? You know, all the great old architecture, you know, it's it's all about angles and fun, but more so, I think, in trying to create that difference for, you know, public golf or trying to open things up. Uh, I think you look at Augusta too. Augusta's about angles, right? You were just there. You know, there's a lot of angles into those greens and, how, and and not so much maybe the angle, but the angle of the shot shape that you hit in for the better players, right? You know, you have to shape shots. Uh, and I think that's probably the case at the park as well, right? You have to shape shots of a certain angle to go ahead to be more receptive into the greens. Yeah, I think one of the things, too, with with what you guys did there is like having like a lot of long, narrow greens yep. set on 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 different angles. What it does, I mean, like good. The average player is probably going to hit what six greens around. Yeah, I probably average five. <laughs> so it's it's like okay, there. It's not like you could design. You could build huge greens, and they probably might hit two more. You yep. know, it's not making like a considerable difference, right? Correct. But when you set, you know, so they're going to be chipping most of the time, right? And and for a, for the better player all of a sudden when you create those like good players miss pin high. Right. And when you have narrow green set on hard angles, Mm -hmm. it becomes very hard to miss pin high. Right. Like then you start to catch those contours. Like I think about the, the 15th, the 15th was like extremely disorienting. My, my range finder was, uh, ran out of battery. So I, and I was, (laughs) I was, I was too lazy to go look at a sprinkler head. I just kind of was eyeballing everything. And it was so windy that it was like kind of an eyeball day, you know, where you're just feeling shots. And I just, I just shipped it way over the green. Like, you know, I thought it was way further, obviously with the mound obscuring it, but like, that's the thing I think that's kind of makes you want to keep going back. There is like, there's a lot of shots out there that are disorienting in your eye leads you to believe one thing then that's different than from what is actually happening. No, you're, you're right. I mean, you, you, to take watch McCall five, take the beer Ritz, for example. Right. Uh, and Gil did, did a great job on that because it, it's a lot of different shots that you need to hit in there. If that pin is in the front or in the middle swale, you're, you're not flying to the, into the pin, right? That, that there says it's probably like what two fifteen or something to the middle of that green, but that's not the shot. You know, it's fine because the front of the green is wide open. The average player, they can hit a hybrid or a three-wood or whatever they want out there. It's going to end up somewhere in tight mode. They're going to have an interesting, you know, fun, uh, you know, approach, recovery shot, whatever you're going to call it, into into that pin location. But the better player who's finally learned how to play, and you're not going to know this right away, is probably not trying to fly the ball to the pin. You're probably knocking the ball 20, 25 yards short right into the bump that kind of comes off the approach and ties into the right side of the green. If you can hit a shot into there, with a little right-to-left action and take a little bit of the heat off of it, you're most likely going to come to rest either on the front or down into the middle of that swale, and it's going to be very rewarding for you. Uh, but it's going to take a while. So it, it, it's out there, and it does help. And, I mean, that's kind of the beauty of it, I think. Yeah. One of the unique aspects of this was uh, you, you've mentioned him a couple times, uh, Dirk Ziff, who was a you know part of, your, part of the investment group uh, of the golf course, but also longtime golf architecture nut, who I believe you guys have kind of worked with uh, at a few other projects uh, before. 
talk about his involvement with the uh, with the project. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so Dirk was one of the uh, initial uh, founders uh, on part of the foundation, you know, and and him and along with Dan Stanton and Seth Wall and a couple of the other guys, you know, uh, obviously uh, did a great job in raising the money. Uh, and Dirk's a huge architecture buff. You know, we've known, known Dirk for a while. I think Gil first met him at Fenway, uh, where he was a member, uh, you know, years back. And we were working there and, and they kind of stuck up a, a relationship, friendship relationship, but also an architectural relationship, right? Uh, Dirk's extremely thoughtful, very knowledgeable, uh, especially in the golf course architecture. And uh, he's also a member of the Vineyard Club. So when we did the work up at the Vineyard Club and kind of moved stuff around, uh, you know, uh, he was he was out there with us. And, you know, again, from another set of eyes and, and just his knowledge in golf course architecture to be able to see things and understand. I mean, I think it was great. It's always good to collaborate with folks. Right. Uh, and just to get their, their view and their opinion on stuff, especially when they've, they've got a good understanding of what makes fun, interesting architecture. And, and that's what Dirk, Dirk does. And that's what he, he helped us do uh, at the Vineyard Club. And then, you know, fast forward, just, you know, playing some golf with them and, and getting to know him as well. And then when this came up, you know, it, it was great. And then his involvement was awesome. And again, he's played a lot of golf at a lot of great clubs around the world. Uh, so helping, you know, uh, work, you know, through the routing and he had a lot of great routing ideas. And then, you know, a lot of the discussions. And to me, that that was kind of the best part about working with him is just being able to have those discussions, right? Kicking ideas off of other folks about what makes great, fun, interesting architecture. Uh, because it has to become thought provoking, right? I mean, we can all get set in our ways and what we do and how we look at stuff and, you know, to be able to have, you know, other folks. And, you know, it's not just Dirk. It's also all of our caveman guys that work with us who are all, you know, really strong architecturally. But just being able to have that network of folks that you can talk about and what makes cool architecture and another set of eyes. Sometimes, you know, in life and just with what we all have going on, you get really busy, right? Uh, and you're working on other projects and you're working there and sometimes you go out there and, you know, you've got interviews with, you know, the Friday, Friday guys, you know, and it's, you know, <laughs> exactly. and now you're, you're carving out some time, which is all great <laughs> stuff. But, you know, you can miss stuff. So I think, you know, Dirk's knowledge and, you know, and his enthusiasm for architecture and his thoughtfulness and, uh, was, was, was great for us. It was great for me personally. I know I can't speak for Gil, but it was great for me. And I think it was great for the project to have those conversations. You know, uh, we, he, he was one of the first ones we started talking to about boldness, right? And what does bold mean? Uh, and I remember we were, you know, we were playing golf and him and I had that discussion and it was great, you know, mounds, like the mounds around eight green at Augusta are bold. Uh, not only are the mounds somewhat bold, but the concept is bold, right? The jockey club mounds are bold, right? Which obviously mm -hmm. would, would tie into McKenzie, but it, it's all part of it, right? And, and to have folks like that, his involvement, I think, you know, helped us make, you know, the park a much better place. I I imagine it seems like to be uh you know most of the the foundation uh members are are just at their core golf nuts and that probably allowed this project to to have a little bit more of what you're calling boldness where if you have a bunch of people that love golf a lot of people that travel to play the greatest golf courses in the world they're going to be a lot more open to ideas like the mounding of the 15th sure exactly yeah you, you have to have folks have to have a little bit of an architectural uh iq we'll call it right uh on what makes fun interesting golf you know we, we've had in the past we've had clients that you know maybe don't understand as much about that there's members of clubs that we've gone in and restored and and rebuilt that don't have 
uh, as much uh, architectural IQ, or, or I shouldn't say that. Maybe it's just the fact of what they're used to playing and what their their projects or or their clubs used to be, right? And Bill Kittleman says it all the time. He's like, people want change, but they don't want anything different, right? And and how do you give them that in the golf course? They want to change their current golf course. You make the changes in there, and then they don't like it because it's different than what they're used to, and and that kind of you know makes people crazy. Uh, and the fact that we were able to blow this up and, and work with people that had the architectural IQ or the willingness to be different, right, and create something fun and what did that mean and, and take the time to understand and research it, I think I think is important. I mean, I think, you know, we're, again, we're fortunate, uh, you know, in who we've worked with early on in our career. You know, we had a guy who thought fun architecture was planting a lot of trees out on the property so we had a place to go to the bathroom you know <laughs> so you, you you get a lot of weird stuff like that you know you get a lot of guys that are, are more worried about the cost of stuff or or what other people are doing right and and this becomes a big theme to become big theme in, in our, our past couple projects whether it's at a hoopie with uh with michael or it was out at ladera with irving or it was all the guys at the at the park and the foundation uh just really is you know the willingness to uh, look at things differently, right? To do things differently. It doesn't have to be about the marketplace. I mean, the, some of the projects, you know, we heard of other people involved that outside of ownership was, well, the marketplace doesn't want that. The marketplace place doesn't want this in, you know, Palm Springs, California. Well, you know what? You know, maybe that market, marketplace is old and tired, right? Maybe we need to do something different and look at it differently. And those three projects right there and, and really the park, you know, we're willing to do that. And, and that becomes extremely important in, in the success of the project, because then our thought process out on, on the job when we're designing and making field changes and building is something totally different. And I think that's important to be able to create the interest that we did at the park. Yeah, I I, uh, I think thinking outside the box is obviously you're you're in an art form. If everybody's doing the same thing, it, it gets pretty boring. And, uh, and being able to br- Bring, especially this is a perfect example, bring a completely different type of public golf course to the market than what exists there. Having lived in the area, I can assure you there's nothing like this golf course. Um, most have ponds all over the place. You're going to lose. I, you know, I, I, I made a joke with somebody. I was like, you know, I don't lose a lot of golf balls, but when I'm in F- South Florida, I lose a lot of golf balls, no matter where I'm playing. You know, <laughs> the combination of wind and water. Yeah, quite frankly, and you may you may lose more uh, from a dollar value standpoint, more money in golf balls than you paid for a greens fee. Yeah, you, know, you should you should do that. Do a little segment in different golf courses in everybody's hometown where it costs more money in golf balls. Even even Kirkland's from uh, whatchamacallit, you can lose two dozen Kirkland's. What's that, $35? I mean, that's some, some green fees for at some places. Yeah, exactly. So it's a completely new golf course. To me, like the park, and, and we'll see, I think it's set up to age extremely well, but, you know, the park reminds me of going to, like, a stream song, more so than playing golf at a municipal golf course in a city. And I think that's the special thing about it is that you're – that. You know, people that go visit there are going to be treated to a different type of public golf experience than they've ever had before. And that's the um, it's really, really exciting. Um, congratulations on on the great cool. job. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing more of your guys work down the uh, down the road here. All right. Great. No, all good. Nice chatting. Andy. And yeah, uh, when you can finally get out of California and make your way back down here, you know, we'll uh, we'll show you some more stuff.
Thank you for listening to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode was edited by Matt Ruses. Thank you, Matt. Uh, yeah, thanks to Jim for coming on. We will be back next week. This is a one-episode week, I think. Garrett might sneak one out, but we had some... You know, Garrett had some travel. I had some travel. I've had a lot of travel lately, and uh, we just needed a little bit of a week to regroup. And we'll be back on the two-episode week schedule uh, starting next week. In the meantime, if you're interested in more golf course content from us, we're humming in uh, Club TFE. I just uh, finished a write-up for Chicago Golf Club. That's the latest uh, course review. Last week was a Hoopy Match Club. Next week is Belvedere. Um, on top of that, we've got we did a, a Club TFE hangout this week, which is basically like an hour long podcast. We talked about the new Dream Golf uh, project in Colorado, you know the uh, and what we expected from Jimmy Craig there, uh, and and much more. So discounts on merchandise, early access to events, all sorts of stuff. Visit uh, thefriedegg.com slash membership if you want to learn more it's 120 dollars for the entire year and that gets you a ton of stuff so thank you guys for listening to another episode of the fried egg we will be back next week and uh thank you to jim for joining 